I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards the Jekyll Well and the Dung Gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the Fountain Gate and the King's Pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up to the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know why, where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Well, that's better. Uh, better for me, at least. As I catch sight of my face in the tablet here, I realise it's not quite such a treat for those of you who have to look at me. You know, we all have to work a little harder these days because of masks and distancing and the camera and the protective screen. We all have to collaborate a little more in order to establish that rapport, which is so important, that chemistry between us, which is is so very important. So I will set my cap to be as interesting and as clear and as helpful as I can today, but I I want you to resolve to, to listen as well as you can as well. And, and by the spirit of God, uh, we will overcome the difficulties, uh, the constraints under which we're currently working. We have lived to uh, see strange days, haven't we? There's an old Irish curse, or possibly it was a blessing that says, may you live in interesting days. And I think we have suddenly seen something of that. Well, Uh, The book of Nehemiah on which you are embarked in your studies is a book, and uh, here's a statement which you may feel when I make it would qualify me as a contestant on Mastermind. It's contestant Bob Telford from Warwick, specialist subject, The Blatantly Obvious. Here's what might seem to be a blatantly obvious statement, but it struck me with fresh force preparing for this afternoon. It is this. The book of Nehemiah is not so much a book about building as it is a book about builders. In fact, it is in particular a book about one builder, uh, this indomitable character, Nehemiah. 
who I suspect, if I be very honest with you, is a man that many of us would probably find it more comfortable to read about than it would have been to work alongside him. Do you, do you ever get that sense as you read about some of these great characters in the Bible? They're wonderful to read about a few thousand years later, but they might not have been a whole lot of fun to have them as our team leader. Sometimes I get that impression of the Apostle Paul, if I'm honest. God tends to use a certain kind of person to start things, to initiate new projects and to undertake great enterprises. And I think Nehemiah was a man of that time. Many years ago, an American poet by the name of, I think his name was Albert Guest, wrote a poem entitled, Somebody Said That It Couldn't Be Done. I wonder if that rings any bells. The opening of the poem goes like this. Somebody said that it couldn't be done, but he with a chuckle replied that maybe it couldn't, but he would be one who wouldn't say so till he tried. Somebody said, oh, you'll never do that, or at least no one has ever done it, but he took off his coat and he took off his hat, and before we knew, he'd begun it. Does that, see, that, that sort of, something in my spirit responds to that. Maybe that's, in a very small way, a, a bit close to home for me. Some people, when they're faced with opposition in the work of God or opposition in any form, um, their, their tendency is to back off, to, to negotiate, to engage in diplomacy or to give up. Some people, they sink their heads in their, to their shoulders and they hunch their shoulders and they clench their fists and they, they swing. And they, you see, I, I think Nehemiah was a man rather of that stamp. Somebody said, oh, you'll never do that. Or at least no one has ever done it. And of course, in, in saying that, they would have been on some solid ground. Not too long before Ezra had engaged in a building project in Jerusalem, in this case, the building of the temple rather than the wall. But in Ezra chapter four, we read that the work came to a standstill. So the people of Nehemiah's day could easily have taken refuge behind the excuse, oh, well, we've tried that and it didn't work. It can't be done. Well, it's a book about a builder, about a certain type of man. We pick up the story. Uh, Nehemiah had heard about the condition of the city. He had wept. He had prayed. He had taken his courage in both hands. He had spoken with the king and he had given thought to the practicalities of what as he puts it in chapter 2 and verse 12, of what the Lord had put in his heart to do. And, of course, all that was very well and good and necessary, wasn't it? Praying and agonizing and thinking and analyzing and planning were all important stages in doing something for God. They are foundational. But when we have done all that, the work is still there to be done. It still has to be done. We haven't done it because we planned it. We haven't done it because we prayed over it. The work is still to be done. And we're going to look at how Nehemiah uh, leads the people into beginning that good work. And from the passage we had read, which we'll keep on the screen perhaps, I want to pick up on perhaps six fairly self-evident points. But first of all, in verse 11, for the sake of those of you who are making notes, I see most of you have wisely decided not to, but for those who are, Firstly, verse 11, he went to see for himself. He went to see the situation for himself. Remember, up to that point, he had only heard about the situation from other people. 
of how bad things have become. When we go to see a situation for ourselves, we get a, a sense of it, which it's difficult to get in any other way. Over the last few years, I've become involved somewhat with a charity which works uh, particularly in and around Bangalore in southern India. And uh, when I was invited to become a trustee of that particular charity, I said, well, first I want to go and visit the projects. Now, I know we can't always go and look at the situations that we'd like to examine and get a hands-on with, but I was able to go out to India and visit the projects. Uh, I remember going on one occasion to a, a meal which was being um, given to lepers, about 140, 150 victims of leprosy and other desperately poor people gathered in a courtyard for a meal. When I was there, my heart was stirred. I was moved in a way that I don't think I've ever been moved by watching slideshows from missionaries. It touched me. I remember praying quietly, Lord, I want to preach good news to the poor. Now, I hadn't been engaged to preach at that event. There was no expectation that I would or requirement that I should. But I was stirred by what I saw, by my proximity to the limbless and the, 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 the main, the helpless, the grindingly poor. I said, Lord, I want to preach good news to the poor. And I'd no sooner prayed that silent prayer when one of the pastors came up and said, Brother Bob, would you like to preach? Oh, yes, I would. Yes, I really would. So up I was able to get and preach. Well, Nehemiah goes to see for himself. And he saw how dire the situation was. He saw how desperate the need. And my point, my takeaway from that would be simply this for you as Kenilworth Community Church. That a leader, whether it's one you are selecting or one whom you already have, a leader needs to be informed. They need to be aware of the situation and the circumstance. And they need to be involved and be present. In Nehemiah's case, he needed to be on site and hands-on. Absentee leadership is far from ideal in almost any circumstance of life I can think about. And it's certainly Far from ideal for a local church to have absentee leaders. In fact, it's probably about 15, maybe 20 years ago now that myself and, and a, a friend at Mighton Church, now with the Lord, Nigel Lee, Nigel and I had been appointed to the eldership team on the same day many years before. And we left the eldership team on the same day many years later. And for exactly the same reason, both of us were involved in other ministries which were demanding more and more of our time. And I tell you, I, I made a very clinical, a forensic decision when I wanted to retain the, the, the respect of the church as an occasional teacher and preacher rather than forfeit it as an absentee leader. And my fellow elders were very understanding about that. Leaders need to be informed and aware, available and on site. Uh, second point is in verse 12. He didn't go alone. He took a few people with him with whom he intended to share the burden. He knew he'd get them much more likely to get their buy-in once they had seen for themselves how grim the circumstances were. People need to get their own vision of what needs to be done. It's grindingly wearying to work week in, week out on the basis of somebody else's vision. Do you know that? You ever found yourself, you got caught up in some aspect of working in a local church, which wasn't really your thing, but 
you know, this particular aspect of the church's life needed help and you stepped up and then years later, you're still in it, but it's, it's, it's joyless. It's not what God has for you. But the leader has a real vision for it and you don't want to let them down. It's wearying. Get your own vision for what God wants you to be involved in. And Nehemiah took these people with them and they got the vision which he was putting before them. Thirdly, he didn't hurry. He didn't hurry. Even though he was mounted, it seems that he went at the pace of the people who were on foot. So it was a slow procession. In fact, basically it took all night. And my point from that would be this, that when we're building for God, don't rush people. Don't bully people into deciding or committing to become involved in God's work. Take a bit of time. Give them time. Sometimes, I'm sure you've seen this for yourselves many times already in your life as a church here, people will come uh, to a service and they are what I call prospecting. Just as a prospective would go panning for gold or mining for gold to see if you can find anything. People do that in the churches. They come and they're really prospecting. They're looking for a church which they might like to align themselves with. And sometimes as leaders, we might be quick to see or we think we see their potential and their gifting and we see just where they would fit into our church program. And we, we really cover them. We want them on the team. That's actually not a time to rush forward. Most often that's a time to step back. Give people time. Don't rush or bully or coerce people into getting involved prematurely. Fourthly, in verse 17, he opened up his heart to his companions. He really said to them four things in the verse. One, you have seen for yourselves what needs to be done. Two, you understand now why we are disgraced and dismissed as being irrelevant and impotent by the people around us. Three, this is what God has told me to do. And four, this is what God has done so far. If you look at that verse, you'll see those strands. This is what God has told me to do. This is what God has done so far. Somebody defined leadership as getting people to do what they ought to do because they want to do it. Shall I give you that again? Getting people to do what they ought to do because they want to do it. No man, the Bible says, or woman should serve by coercion. But Nehemiah was a good leader. He shared the vision. He opened his heart. And he got, fifthly, in verse 18, their buy-in. They say in verse 18, let us start rebuilding. Us. There was a unity of purpose, and the whole project moved beyond words, beyond inspection, beyond analysis. Generally speaking, somebody said, when all is said and done, a great deal more gets said than ever gets done. But this was one of those occasions when, after all was said and done, the people actually got going and things began to get done. They started building, verse 18 says, they began this good work, and they could have offered several reasons or excuses why they ought not to have got involved or it ought not to have been done, as I've said. I don't know about you, but I've noticed that some people in life are, are always quick to spot the cloud that's around any silver lining. Have you noticed that? Anytime an idea is put to them, a proposal is made to them, they're quick to give you, they can give you 10 reasons right off the top of their head without pausing for thought. 10 reasons why it shouldn't be done, couldn't be done, won't be done, mustn't be. But it's just, they're just problem oriented like that. They just see the problems 
Other people are wired up to see the possibilities. And clearly, we need people in a church, in a church team, as a church family. We need people who are oriented in both those directions. But Nehemiah was a possibilities thinker, wasn't he? And these people began to see the possibilities as well. And so, verse 18, they began this good work. And I want you to know three obvious things from verse 18. First of all, God's work is work. God's work is work. It would not be easy. In this case, it would be physically difficult. It would be spiritually difficult. This project was going to take everything they had to give and more. God's work is work. It is not a cop-out. It's not a hobby. Secondly, it was described as a good work. In fact, in chapter 6, verse 3, we're told it was a great work. A work of God. Planting a church, growing a church, reaching and teaching people for Jesus is a great work. A wonderful thing to do and a worthwhile thing to do. And, and the world is dismissive of the need for that. And it doesn't consider those people who work for God to really be doing a proper job at all. When I was, uh, I suppose, um, at 21, I was at Bible College on the south coast of England. And um, I went back during one of the vacations to my own church in Alperton, just that's next to Wembley in North London. I went back to my own church to lead a holiday Bible club, a children's uh, mission, we used to call it, a sort of vacation Bible school, the Americans would call it. You know the sort of thing I mean. And um, I went back to lead this. And my father, who'd retired by then, um, was not at that point a believer in Christ. He, he crept in at the back of the church hall to watch his son leading this children's mission. And he saw me dancing around at the front with the guitar and leading the children in silly actions and telling them stories with visual aids and all the rest. And when I was talking to him afterwards, my dad had been a coal miner at the age of 14 and had worked hard manually all his life. He said, boy, when are you going to get yourself a proper job? I wasn't too stung by it because it's just, it's, it, it, it's just a, a, a gap of understanding. But uh, it is real work to do and it needs to be approached on that basis. It is a good work. And it needed to be begun. After all the thinking about the project and the possibilities, the prayer meetings and the investigating and the researching and the feasibility studies, God's work still needs to be done. Maybe that will be the takeaway from this message. Maybe God is saying, come on, get on, get on and do it. So let me give you a quick recap. First of all, he was a hands-on leader. He went to see for himself. Secondly, he took others with him. He was a team builder and a team leader. Thirdly, he didn't hurry. To some extent, at least, he was a patient leader. Fourthly, he opened his heart to his team. He was an inspirational leader. And fifthly, he secured their commitment. He was a successful leader. Somebody once said, that if you think you're a leader and no one is following you, you're not really leading, you're just taking a walk together. If you think you're a leader and no one is following you, you're not really leading, you're just taking a walk. Now, I wouldn't press that too hard because I think there are plenty of examples in history and the history of the church of people who were definitely called by God to leadership, but whom people were reluctant to follow. But I do take the general spirit of that comment. Nehemiah was a successful leader in that people actually followed him and got on with the job. And finally, sixthly, it was opposed. The work of God was opposed. It was opposed by an alliance, a Hoanite, an Ammonite, 
and an Arab, each one having little in common with the other, except their anti-Semitism and their desire to see the work of God sabotaged and halted. And uh, we see that elsewhere in the scripture, how hostility to God, hostility to Christ in the case of Herod and Pontius Pilate can make for strange bedfellows. Have you noticed that? It makes for strange bedfellows when people are united against the work of God and against the person of Christ. And so here you had Sambalat, a powerful man in Samaria, Tobiah, the Ammonite. Ammonites had a long-standing hostility with God's people. They had refused to help the Hebrews when the Hebrews came out of Egypt, and Gashem, an Arab leader. And these people each had a vested interest in opposing the work of God. And can I share this with you? When, when we encounter people who are opposed to the work of the gospel, who are opposed to the establishment, the development, and the growth of a church, whether it's here in Kenilworth or wherever it is, it's often worthwhile trying to discover just what exactly is the act they're grinding. What is at the bottom of their problem with what is being proposed and, and done? What has gone sour in their lives, which is causing them to be opposed to God's work? You see, when you, when you look back at these people, uh, Sam Ballard, uh, the Ammonite, Tobiah, uh, Gashem, the Arab. There's a, there's a reason each one of them had a grounds for a grudge against God. The Ammonites, for example, were expressly excluded from membership or from being in God's house in Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 3. And clearly they, they bore a grudge about that. And so when the work of God starts to happen, they find themselves, they set themselves to oppose it. There's often a reason when people, when you're trying to talk to someone about your faith in Christ and their reaction seems disproportionately hostile, there's nearly always a reason there why they got this controversy with God. And if you can get to that reason, you'll go a long way towards being able to respond to it. Well, the opposition was initially verbal. It was mockery. It was ridicule. Somebody once said, ridicule is the weapon of those people who have no other weapon. Ridicule is the weapon of those people who have no other. But it's not easy to endure or pleasant. And the opposition would intensify and does intensify as you go through the book. It becomes both more subtle and more overt. And always it becomes more dangerous. And Nehemiah's response as we come into verse 20 and close this little study. Nehemiah's response was to state unequivocally three things. First of all, in verse 20, he says, uh, this is God's work. God is in it. Your attempt to derail it or sabotage it will be unsuccessful. Secondly, we are God's servants. We don't need your permission. We don't even need your goodwill. And thirdly, uh, very bluntly, he says, this whole project, in fact, has nothing to do with you whatsoever. I mean, if ever a man wasn't a loss to the diplomatic service, it was dear old Nehemiah. This is God's work. You are bound to fail. We are his servants. We don't need your permission. And in fact, this project has got nothing to do with you. There are times when diplomacy is necessary, but to negotiate or to concede anything in this situation would have been a big mistake for Nehemiah. Anything other than a direct rejection of them and their taunts would only have encouraged him. So there, that's Nehemiah. No loss to the diplomatic service, but a man that I think I could follow personally. An indomitable leader. We see him later as a prayerful man and these other things, but 
We focus on the fact he was indomitable. And in a local church, we need people in leadership of Nehemiah's stamp. We need some people who will always be wanting to press the accelerator a little harder. We also need people who are inclined to just dab the brakes from time to time. And that's one of the strengths of team leadership. That's why God calls us to function as leaders in teams. We need Ezra's, who was a, a rather more gentle and a rather quieter personality than the formidable Nehemiah. We need Ezra's, but we also need Nehemiah's. We need people who are good at seeing the obstacles, but we also need people who are good at seeing the possibilities. Let me pray with you. Thank you, Lord, for preserving the example of your servant, Nehemiah, uh, from so long ago. We pray, Lord, we'll have something of Nehemiah's attitude of persistence in the face of opposition. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, friends, for allowing me to fellowship with you today. Lord bless you, each one.